we hear a lot about approval ratings if we're listening to the news and you know a lot of people live and die by those approval ratings but one thing is crystal clear doesn't matter who the individual is nobody is liked by everyone you don't have to work too hard at finding uh, people that will oppose you uh, no matter how hard you try even people that set out to to try to get approval they're going to have to make accommodations to the people who up front say well I don't I don't approve of you well what will it take to have you approve of me well you make those adjustments well guess what the people that used to approve of you probably don't approve of you now because they disagree with the people that formerly didn't approve of you and so it can become this really this vicious cycle or this seesaw back and forth now I think there is some wisdom to considering input from people and saying you know well uh, is this counsel that I can get if, if people aren't approving of something maybe there is some basis to this maybe there's some legitimacy to to what they don't like but again we need to filter everything before we make decisions and adjustments and choices against the principles of what the Word of God teaches politicians it seems like uh, will do almost anything to gain approval but again at their best day they're still going to have opponents they're going to still have adversaries but those people especially those leaders who are really loyal to God they are going to become a special target if they're going to choose I don't want to be at odds with my God well they're going to ruffle some people's feathers aren't they uh, they're going to rub people the wrong way here in Psalm 21 we've been looking the last two Wednesday nights and tonight we're going to conclude this psalm with part three of this message talking about uh, leaders who are openly uh, courageous about uh, lauding the Lord, lifting Him up in their lives, promoting Jesus Christ, not ashamed of God and living for Him. And as a loyal soul in leading others, and to some degree we don't have to be a politician or elected to a position, to some degree we're all called to a role of leadership. Uh, in the sense that we influence people around us. And so these principles are going to hold true to us. Uh, whether you're someone like myself as a pastor or as a layperson, still we're called to lead. We have families. We probably have some sort of leadership capacity as a parent, grandparent. Uh, we exercise some influence there. And the same things are true. We need to say... Fundamentally, I'm committed to lifting up the Lord. That's the most important thing. And like anything, it's a step of faith. We could rationalize and say, well, if I do this, this person's going to get upset. I'm going to alienate this person. Perhaps we might, but perhaps the Lord might intervene. And we need to trust the Lord in these matters and, and do what he would direct us to do. In this last section of Psalm 21, which begins at verse 8, the focus 
is on how the Lord takes care of the enemies for leaders who will laud the Lord, who will lift up Jesus Christ personally in their lives. The assault really is expected. Uh, it, doesn't, it shouldn't come as a surprise. Uh, Jesus warned us, you know, uh, if you're in the world, be prepared that the world is going to hate you because they first hated me. So we expect the assault, but we need to be encouraged by God's promises to ultimately him being the one who will handle the adversaries. And he gives us several things here in this psalm that I think might encourage our hearts. So let's talk about how God handles these adversaries for the committed leader who lifts up the Lord in his life. Verse 8 says, Thine hand, and this is David the psalmist as a king writing about God, Thy hand shall find out all thine enemies, thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. Now, what is this talking about? Well, it's talking about how the adversaries get exposed. Now, often adversaries are not very upfront about their tactics. Uh, they, can, they can be very devious. They can tend to camouflage what their motives are so that when you call into question their actions and say, well, I know why you did that, and you're like, oh, no, that was the furthest thing from my mind, and, and they have an answer. They, come back, they have a comeback for that. But when it talks about the hand here uh, that's mentioned in, in both the first and second parts of verse 8, it's a little unclear by some commentator stand, standards whether the hand belongs to the human leader that we're talking about who's lifting up God or God himself. Even if you identify it as properly being the leader's hand, it's still understood that ultimately it's God's invisible hand at work here in behalf of the leader. So it really comes back to God ultimately anyway. So the metaphor, if we could put it this way, since we know God's the spirit, he doesn't have anatomical parts. He doesn't have a literal hand because he doesn't have a literal body. God is a spirit. But yet often the Bible refers to uh, anatomy parts when it comes to God in relationship to how he interacts with us, how he operates so we can understand. We know what our hands do, what they're for. So the metaphor of God's hands refers to his reach in this particular verse. And I think the, the promise or the encouragement for us is to know that no adversary for a loyal leader is beyond the divine grasp of God. The idea is, is this guy going to get away with this? Shouldn't cross our mind. We shouldn't think that, that God's asleep or God's missing something. You know, God's fully aware. He's fully in control. There are crafty adversaries out there, aren't there? You may have crafty adversaries that you've had to deal with in your own personal life. Uh, we listen to the news and we, we can probably identify people that we would consider crafty adversaries of those that seem to be for righteousness or against those that stand for righteousness but it doesn't matter how crafty matter how sly they are no one 
can slip through the fingers of God. No one can be that evasive. I like what Amos 9.2 says. This is God's response to people like that. Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. See, that's uh, God saying, you know, and by hell, that's often a reference in the Hebrew terms of Sheol, which, which may mean the grave. In other words, you think you can, you can die and get away from God? No. Sorry, it doesn't even work that way. And, and, you know, you can escape a lot when your life ends, but you, can't, you still can't escape God, can you? You meet him on the other side. And, you know, people, again, whether they climb up to heaven, sometimes I think about the story of the Tower of Babel where they were trying to build a tower, man's accomplishments, right? And we're going we're gonna to build a tower to heaven. And yet, what did God do? God brought them down. He didn't have to send an earthquake to shake the, the tower, you know. He just confounded their languages. God, God can choose whichever means he wants. But, you know, while this was a seemingly a, a formidable effort by all the population of the world, seemingly, God just in a stroke just humbled them all, didn't he? You see, God has a way of exposing adversaries. As it says here in verse 8, God will find out. Love that phrase right there. Literally, the idea is to expose. We sometimes hear about articles written in a newspaper, and they call them an expose, where, you know, the truth has come out. And, you know, especially right now, it seems like sometimes politicians or political groups, you know, you're even suspicious from both sides, by the way, sitting on information and releasing it at a very uh, pivotal time. You know, like it will do the, have the most impact if we expose this right now. Some people are very, very careful. You know, be sure the truth will find you. Be sure your sin will find you out, the Bible tells us. And God will find out. He will expose these adversaries, which means that they previously posed as, what, friends, perhaps. You know, they, they came across as, you know, being on the same side as some of these leaders. Maybe they said, you know, I'm a supporter. But, you know, there's Judases in every camp, aren't there? And, and you know, if you'd asked Judas as he began to follow the Lord, are you going to be a traitor? and secretly infiltrate, there's no evidence that Judas had that consciously in his mind. What he probably had was a misguided ambition and expectation about what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as he realized the longer he was with the disciples of Christ, that this wasn't what he signed up for, then he became treacherous. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on even today in uh, the people that support existing leadership. They probably didn't start out that way. They probably started out legitimately thinking, well, I think I, I believe in what this guy stands for. I think I can support him. But then as time goes by, they realize, hmm, you know, it's not, not what I thought it was going to be. And maybe they served to try to 
bring down that person. God can then turn around and expose those people for their insidious actions against honorable, moral, and Christ-honoring people. If you find a leader that is committed to the Lord, you can be sure that the prince of this world will seek somehow to infiltrate his surroundings with counterfeit counselors. Again, they, they may be unwittingly so. They're not saying, you know, well, I'm going to serve the prince of darkness and infiltrate this, this leader's cabinet or, you know, his, his staff or something like that. Very, very unlikely that that's the case. But that doesn't mean that they don't serve as some sort of puppet for what Satan is trying to accomplish. Remember, even of Peter, Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. They may pose to seek the welfare of the leader and will guide him in wisdom, but in time, they will bring that leader to ruin if not exposed for what their true agenda is. So how can such individuals be detected if they're so camouflaged? And it's often only because of our all-seeing and all-knowing God brings it to light. In His providence, He does something to expose these people and to bring them out into the open. Praise God that the Lord is in charge of that. And I think we see some of that even in our own country's government. Maybe it doesn't, nobody gives God the credit for that, but I'm thinking, you know, how did they, how did that person get booted? How did it come about, you know? And we, you and I may never hear the details of the story. But then I sometimes think, you know, God, you're behind the scenes. You're the one that's bringing that about. Secondly, we see adversaries will be eventually eliminated. Look at verses 9 and 10. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their fruit shalt thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. So here's an illustration of really what we would call as an incinerator, this fiery oven. It gives a vivid depiction of how God is going to eliminate such adversaries. This fiery oven is not for cooking uh, things, but for hardening things like the freshly made clay vessels. They really raise the heat up. And so the destruction of the adversaries of this loyal leader are compared to sticks, of, uh, sticks and logs and kindling that are thrown in to, to heat this fire up so that it can do its work. And so these individuals are cast into an oven and consumed quickly in the intense heat. Now, that doesn't mean that in this illustration that that means God's going to like strike them physically dead in this. But it's, it's like a, a, how a log fuels its own consumption. Because isn't that what happens when you put a log in the fire? Well, what makes the fire burn hotter? That log. But as the fire burns hotter... The log is consumed, right? And so it is. The wicked ways of these adversaries of loyal people to God. These wicked ways often contribute to their own self-destruction. Remember the debauchery 
uh, and the, the hedonistic party that was thrown by uh, Belshazzar there in the book of Daniel. I mean, he's very smug. He's very comfortable thinking, you know, uh, I'm on top. I, you know, I'm a world ruler. And in his drunken stupor, you know, he's bringing out the, the, the fine gold trinkets that were ca- captured as booty by his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, when he first brought the children of Israel into captivity. And they had ransacked the temple of God and, and brought all these special gold accoutrements, all these vessels from that place. But what we all remember from that story, sometimes this is how we talk, we label the title of the story, was the handwriting on the wall, right? And, and you know, people use that phrase all the time, you know, well, you finally saw the handwriting on the wall. And some of them don't even know it comes, that phrase comes from the Bible. But literally, God divinely scratches, etches into the walls of the place where the party's taking place, words that when Daniel interprets it, tells him that you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and tonight, the eve of this party, while all this frivolity is going on and you think you're on the top of the world, this kingdom is going to be ripped from your hands. And sure enough, the Persians were at that very moment damming up the Euphrates River that ran under the walls of the great city, and they were coming in and infiltrating and eventually uh, winning the victory. And so what is this? It's a reminder to us that, that God in His perfect timing has a way of eliminating, just like He describes here, such individuals who oppose those that lift up the Lord in their life. And truly, Belshazzar was a wicked and evil king. It's not just the adversaries, but their evil lineage also, because that's what verse 10 is talking about when it says their fruit. You know, what about who comes after them? And, and, and God is promising to eliminate their fruit, their lineage. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that no children will survive, but, but that God can remove the fruit of the man's ways. And we deal with him, and going to remove the, the ability for his lineage, if they do survive, to continue on this wicked tradition. Prime example in the Bible was King Saul. Now, King Saul showed himself ultimately to be an evil man. The Bible talks about his wickedness. He also became an adversary of the writer of this psalm, David. And all of Saul's sons were ultimately s- slain except for one, the hard-to-pronounce Mephibosheth, which was really the grandson, we would say. It was a grandson, but sons in the biblical term. Uh, and, and, of course, ordinarily, you know, the next king would try to execute all the lineage so that they couldn't usurp, you know, lead a coup and usurp the throne. David wasn't about that. Uh, all, all of Saul's lineage... Was, was dead for other reasons, but David said, you know, search out and see if there's anyone left so that I might do a kindness to the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. You remember how much he loved Jonathan. Jonathan and he were knit, and Jonathan was a righteous soul, and he was, he was all in favor of David being the next king and knew that that was God's leading in all of that. 
But Mephibosheth was found to be the only one left. He was lame in his legs, a young man. The Bible says instead of David going and executing him, David had mercy on that lame man, brought him to himself, restored the lands of Saul for this young man, and said, you know, if that's not enough, guess what? You, you can have dinner with me anytime you want at the king's table. What an example of mercy. Well, Mephibosheth was obviously not someone that was carrying out the fruit of Saul's ways. And so God truly had eventually eliminated the adversaries of this man, King David, who was a lifter up of the Lord. A third thing we see in verse 11 is that adversaries will experience foiled plots. Verse 11, For they intended evil against thee, they imagine mischievous device, which they are not able to perform. You know, they've sat and plotted and planned, but they just can't get it off the drawing board. And again, to go back to Saul, because no doubt, as David's writing this, that's got to be in the forefront of his thinking. Didn't Saul numerous times try to track David down in the wilderness? I mean, he was, he was you know, perplexed. He was obsessed with doing David in. On one occasion... He throws the javelin at David. What's David doing at that time? Was he taunting King Saul? No, he's playing lovely music, trying to soothe Saul. But, but he was even at a close range, relatively close range. And Saul would have probably been a pretty good marksman with a javelin. If he had one close at hand, you know, in that day and age, kings would practice you know, their swordsmanship, their javelin throwing and stuff like that. So it might be a little odd that Saul missed, except for the fact that God has a way of foiling man's plans and their plots. Proverbs fourteen seventeen says, A man of wicked devices is hated. You know, and there, there probably wasn't a lot of people that admired King Saul in his own court, but all of David's men were like, David, if you have an opportunity to eliminate Saul, take that opportunity. Get rid of him. He's nothing but pure nastiness. Why won't you just do him in? There was no one that really loved King Saul. Proverbs 12, 2 says, A man of wicked devices will he, referring to God, condemn. So God was against Saul in so many ways because of his sinful activities. If God did not divinely intercede against the evil intentions of sinners, just think about this. If God wasn't invisibly at work even now, and sinners were allowed to be unchecked to take their intentions as far as they wanted them to go, what would our world really look like right now? I dare say we don't really want to think that, that desperately, do we? We live in a time where the wicked have skilled themselves at appearing to be caring and appearing to be correct. I mean, you can listen to them. And how many times we've listened to someone that's being interviewed on the news and we're just shaking our heads and saying, you know what? They sound like they really believe what they're saying. They, they sound like they're really convinced that this is best for our country. This is best for humanity. You know? I mean, how can they 
you know, believe this. You know, still, with the passage of time, we ought to still, just with the one topic of the unborn and people being willing to sacrifice the unborn for whatever reason it might be, and to hear people talk and seem sound educated, and, and they don't sound uncaring. They, they present themselves as being caring. Caring for the unborn? No. Caring for the carrier of the unborn. That's how they present themselves. All the time willing to, to murder an unborn child. You have to really peel back the layers, don't you, to, to see what's going on there. But those who work at revealing the wicked plans of such people are usually labeled as what? Hateful. That's hate speech to talk about those people. They're, they're the only ones that really care. Or you might be labeled as out of step, you know. Uh, that's so provincial. That's so Elizabethan. Or, or you're backward. You know, you're just a bunch of uncouth rednecks or whatever. And, or maybe you're just uninformed. And they kind of look down at you in a very dismissive way. You know, they appear to be, in many people's eyes, that are, quote, the undecided, to be the right ones, the caring ones. So how could man ever hope in and of himself to reverse the avalanche of evil plots once the slide begins? I mean, you think about it. It's like, how would you begin to address this? You know, people are wondering, it's like, you know, if there is something that's evil out there, you know, almost nobody's willing to report it in the media. So how, how do you even get the information out there to inform people about this? And it's getting worse in that way, folks. It is. And the answer is, a person, a human being, can't in and of himself. But God can intervene. God can foil plots. God can step in. And folks, I think he has. I think we see it happen, not just in our own country, but in other parts of the world as well, where it seemingly defies explanation. God still has a way of unseating adversaries for those who are lovingly lifting him up. And then fourthly, look at verse 12. Adversaries will be forced to retreat ultimately. Therefore shalt thou make them turn their back when thou shalt make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. Now ultimately God is the only one who can squelch the aggressive agenda of the wicked and make them turn back. He's the only one that can turn them around. We can't do that. We, we, we could plot, we could rally, we could do all sorts of things. That's not ultimately going to make a lasting difference. Not saying that all of those measures don't have some point. Because we have no idea how, how, fair, how far the enemy will advance before God intervenes. You know, like how aggressive, you know, how extreme will they become? They may seem to draw so awfully close that we might want to despair of all hope. And I hear of Christians talking about, even in the upcoming election, thinking, well, what if this is the outcome? You know, you know, woe is us. Where is our hope? And yet in this verse, we're described in the second part as godly people, as those that are not to run but to stand courageously before them, ready for a confrontation. 
much like the archers who wait for the attack to be imminent. We should make ready arrows. And those arrows should be arrows of rebuke with points of scriptural truth. We have the truth on our side, folks. And if our strings of our bows are taut in our communication, then our minds are equipped and ready to engage as God would have us. It's probably not going to be to the masses. It's probably going to be in one-on-one conversations with people that God puts across our path. And yet, are we courageous enough to draw the arrows of truth and to allow them to be lodged in a helpful way in the hearts of those that could be turned back? In other words, this verse is teaching us that we're not to idly presume upon God's intervention. Yes, thou shalt make them turn back. That's God's working. But we're not to be lazy in our preparation. We're supposed to be ready with our arrows and bows, so to speak. We're to prepare to serve God, but ultimately know, as David said, that the battle is the Lord's. It's in His hands. And this should be our mindset as we're looking at elections and governments not just this one but what happens in other countries as well and so we're given great concluding verse here in verse 13 be thou exalted lord jehovah in thine own strength so will we sing and praise thy power again it takes our eyes off of all the skirmish all of the adversaries all the problems and says you know i'm 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 looking back at you, God. And so in this final verse, we are reminded to recognize the strength of the Lord. How strong is God? He's eternally strong. He's omnipotent. God's strength is more indirect, though, and therefore often we overlook it. It doesn't necessarily come down to a a big bolt of lightning that just totally disrupts a a a certain rally of of people that have an agenda of wickedness. The strength of an army is easily visualized. You see its weapons, tanks, artillery, cannons. You see the, the number of troops. And often governments will parade their troops and all of their artillery as a as a show of force. Why? Well they're hoping to intimidate. They're hoping to drive away the, the hope of opposition. And often adversaries can be very intimidating because of that show of force. And the world can be very in our face as believers. And they can try to intimidate us in all of this. But we must discern God's might by our eye of faith. That's the only way we're going to see it. We must believe in God's might and His strength. That's why I love 2 Kings chapter 6. The story there, the king of Assyria, he's trying to get his, his military campaign off the ground, but every time he, he tries to launch an attack or do something, it's like he's defeated. And he's trying to figure out what the problem is. Are there spies? And then he finds out there's this prophet of Jehovah named Elisha. And, and it's like he's almost in his bedroom or something like that. And because Elisha is, is always able to prophesy. Well, the reason Elisha is able to do that is because he's getting truth from God. And God's directing him in that way. 
And so the, the, the Syrian king get, musters all of his troops, and he says, we're going to go get Elisha. So he goes to the town of Dothan, a humble little city, and he surrounds this city during the night. In the morning, Elisha's faithful servant gets up, you know, I can see him opening up the, the wooden shutters, you know, of the house to look out. And as he, maybe as he looks out over the, the battlements of the, of the city, he looks down and he sees to the west of him this, this army in array from Syria, sees the standards, recognizes the enemy army, looks out to the, the other side. Looks at, they're all around. There's, and, and he realizes, wait, they're here because of us. They're here because of my master Elisha. And he's beginning to panic. And Elisha becomes aware of it. And Elisha is very calm because he has the eye of faith. But he wants his servant to get that same eye of faith. And so Elisha prays to God and he says, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the story goes on to say that God does that. He, he literally pulls back the veil, the, 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 the physical veil, and allows this servant, probably Gehazi, to be able to see what no one else can see, and that is beyond the armies of Syria, up into the mountain and hills, is the chariots, the fiery chariots of the heavenly host that far surpass the military prowess of what the king of Syria has brought. You know, we, of course, there's great victory for the man of God. And there is a bringing down of the adversaries of those that uh, were disloyal or against this loyal man. But do we require a special vision? Do we need to be able to have what the servant of Elisha had? Lord, you know, let me have a special vision. Or should it not be enough that we have the truth of a mighty God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And that we can have faith in Him to work in our behalf today, just like He did in Elisha's day. We should sense it in the way that God provides through other means. How He answers prayer. How He resolves issues that we face. We need to have that perception, that discernment. Give thanks to God. Glorify Him in that way. Noah, it wasn't just luck. Or it wasn't just our smarts. It was God who stood in behalf of leaders who lifted him up. May we pray that we will be those leaders. And may we pray that God will lift up leaders in our midst as well. Father in heaven, thank you for the encouragement that we receive to bolster our faith in your word. So Lord, help us not to be stirred inappropriately by the events that we see around us. May we in faith come to you in believing that you, the God of the past, are still the God of the present. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.